You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Hey everyone, just a reminder, uh, this show is brought to you by Audible. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash Detroit or text Detroit. That's not case sensitive, so just D-E-T-R-O-I-T to 500-500. Audible offers an unmatched selection of audiobooks. Uh, one such audiobook is Stephen King's The Outsider, narrated by Will Patton, who you might remember as one of the oil rig guys from Armageddon way back in 1998, which is 20 years old this year. Wow. But Stephen King's The Outsider. I'm currently uh, listening to that, and that is a, a great audiobook, one such uh, selection that Audible offers you. Once again, go to audible.com slash Detroit or text Detroit to 500-500. Hey, everybody. It's Wednesday night. Time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. I am back. How's everybody doing this evening? All right. My guest tonight is Ann Arbor's 1071's John Bomarito. John. How are you doing, man? Good evening. How are you? I'm good. I'm good as well. Thanks for coming in. Sure. I'm sorry I had to delay it a couple of times. Sometimes I'm in demand. I'm actually, I'm supposed to be somewhere else tonight too, but I said, nope, can't cancel on them again. Well, I really appreciate that, man. <laughs> I, I was going to say like uh, democracy is, is more important than uh, than anything <laughs> well, that's going on here. So Today was actually a, a Alzheimer's Association event that I probably should have shown up for, but that's okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of an, an unofficial helper with the walk down to Alzheimer's. I'm kind of on there committee so really well well now i feel bad no no it's okay <laughs> I, I texted the G- gm and just said hey you know I'm, I'm doing this thing oh must be nice to be in demand anyway, she's fine with it they know i have a team they know i'm doing my thing well thanks for uh, thanks for coming in um my pleasure so jumping right into the interview uh, i always start off uh, with the exact same question that question is where were you born <sighs> last i heard it was detroit i was born at st john's hospital and there's also a st john's hospital in warren like a mile from where i grew up and i've never ever questioned which St. John's it was until my wife said, is that the one you were born in? I said, I, I don't know now. <laughs> I always thought it was the one in Detroit. So huh. I, think, I think the one in Detroit. Pretty sure. All right. Well, uh, tell me about your childhood. You, you said you grew up in, uh, in Warren. I grew right? up in Warren, 12 in Shaner area. Uh, yeah. Um, it was not a bad childhood, but I guess because sometimes you want to remember only the good things. I blocked out a lot of my childhood. I had, hmm. you know, I had good neighborhood friends and – I was kind of a pudgy kid until about sixth grade and, and then just grew taller until 12th grade and didn't gain any weight for a really long time after that. I think a lot of people who knew me in high school probably assumed that I would be doing something in the music industry, which is, I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of people from that era that I still talk to. They're still in my world, but I only have a few close friends that are from that early part of my life. Somebody I've known since second grade is still one of my best friends. Somebody I've oh, known wow. since seventh grade is still a really good friend of mine. And you know, I've got friends from high school that are still part of my life, but Again, I think most people would have assumed that I, I followed the path that I, I'm on. But re- really, did you know in high school what you were going to be? Hell no. Right. And <laughs> I still don't know. I mean, I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But it was a good neighborhood in, in Warren where I grew up, a 12 and Shaner area. Like I said, I had a, a guy that lived a couple doors away from me who was a big influence on me. Uh, having my own brother and sisters was was great. But uh, this Dave was like an extra brother to me. And he, hmm. he got me collecting things. He got me collecting stamps and Baseball cards. I'm still a big baseball fan. And then he got me collecting records. He made the mistake maybe in my life of taking me to a record store called Record Time, which at that time was located on 10 Mile between Gratiot and Kelly. And I fell in love with this place. And when I was in high school, I was on the uh, the newspaper. And I wanted this guy to be an advertiser because as students, we were supposed to find advertisers. And he's like, oh, I'd love to. I've only been open a couple of years, but I, I can't really afford to advertise. I still wanted to help him. So I, I offered him a, 
can we do something where people get a discount if they come to your store, like record time rock trivia? Do you like that? He goes, sure, okay, let's try it. So basically, if you answered a, a, a trivia question, you could get 10% off your purchase or something like that. Huh. He liked that a lot, enough that when I was graduating from high school and he was getting married that summer, he said, hey, do you want a job? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got offered a job right out of high school to work at this record store, the first ever paid employee he had, Wow, which was pretty cool. So he got to go on his honeymoon and I, I got to learn from a guy who used to be, you remember Peaches Record Store? I do not know. You're a little younger than me. <laughs> Peaches was a, a chain throughout uh, Michigan that had, uh, throughout the states actually, but they had locations in Ann Arbor for one and also in uh, Frazier. Because I know this because he closed up the one in Frazier, which is where he met his wife. He was the manager in the Ann Arbor store. He ended up opening his own store after that. So he was a big influence on me as, as well as far as being uh, changed kind of how I looked at uh, the world. He, he taught me how to treat people. When you work in a retail job, you know, have you ever had to work a retail job? I have, yeah. It was very short-lived. But yes, I, I, did. I worked at Toys R Us for a little while. I think it should be required because at that point, you learn how to treat people who are on the other side. When you're a yeah. customer, you should be treating people a certain way. And when you get treated poorly as a retail clerk, you go, I'm never going to do that exactly. to somebody. Exactly. Yep. So yep. working for Mike was was great in that regard. But it also, I was already a music fan. And I'm, I was, I remember as a kid discovering uh, my first, my first seven inch single that I bought was a Paul McCartney and Wings single. Listen to what the man said. And at that point, I'm like eight years old or something. I didn't really know about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Found out that Paul McCartney was in the Beatles and found out there was these Beatle cartoons that were on at the time. Reruns, of course, but. I used to rush home from elementary school at lunch and watch them. I could walk back and forth between elementary school and home, and I fell in love with the Beatles. I mean, that that was kind of the first like big thing I fell in love with. Hmm. That's pretty good building blocks for anybody's music taste as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, solid foundation. I, I'd say so. And Steve, the kid down the street, also liked the Beatles. So we were we bonded over the Beatles. And uh, that just kind of became a thing to start collecting music a little bit, best I could at that age, ask for records for my birthday, Christmas, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so when you stick that kind of a person into a record store at the age of uh, 17 slash 18, <laughs> it's like sticking an alcoholic in a liquor store. Yeah, exactly. So I started a collection then that has gotten a little out of control. <laughs> well, you uh, – that, that was a lot there. Um, so uh, Sorry. I went no, off no, on a no, tangent. That, that tangential. Because I was like, I was like, oh, man, I want to ask about that. Oh, I got to ask about that. Go ahead. Uh, so Dave, how, how did you first meet Dave? The guy that well, got da- you? Dave is two doors away from me. His parents were actually my godparents. Oh, okay. He had an older brother and an older sister. His older sister was our babysitter. Mm. His older brother was friends with my. I mean, we're all friends. They're, that family is like family to us. So they're always going to be there. They were always part of our lives, and we're still part of their lives. Mm-hmm. I DJed their daughter's weddings and stuff like that. So, um, so Dave's just a constant, constant man. I see. I don't see him a ton still. We get together at least every year. There's an annual euchre party that happens at his house the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and it's, it gets together the neighborhood friends that I used to know as well. So it's always good to do that. But we try and connect a couple times throughout the year as well. Okay. Uh, what kind of a student were you? You kind of went into that a little bit. but I was a good student. I was an A-B student. Um, I never really – I didn't not want to get good grades, but I never stressed about it like kids do today. I, my, my wife's a teacher, and she has a lot of kids who, who freak out if they get a B. Like, mm-hmm. no, B is above average. You know, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, you're passing. Yeah, yeah. you're doing great. If you get C, that's still – that's okay. But mostly I got A's and B's, and I, I wasn't really a science person or a social studies person. I was more math-English. Mm-hmm. Um, and good, still good at both of those things, I think, for the most part. That's an interesting combination, too. Usually it's like uh, English, social studies, math, science. Like, I, never right? li- the split, right? I never liked social studies. I was okay with science. I liked it okay, but I never – I never felt a passion for it, but mm-hmm. I, I still like numbers for some reason. I mentioned off the air 
that I really like baseball. And I think what I like about baseball is the stats. Right. I think that's right. part of why I like it. It's a lot of math there. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of like this guy has this many RBIs or he's got this ERA or whatever. Why, why am I drawn to that? I don't know. But that even if it's the slowest sport to watch other than golf, it kind of drags on sometimes. I love it. I don't know why. But it, it, it has something to do with Dave and making me collect baseball cards and getting into the – on the back of the cards. You have the stats and all that. It's, mm-hmm. it's just part of the DNA of who I was as a kid. I have to ask you real quick. Do you still have your stamp collection and your baseball card collection? I sold them both. Uh, when I was collecting baseball cards as a kid, I envisioned that being my house payment. Oh, how wrong I was. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't worth very much by the time I sold them. I think uh-huh. that it might have fluctuated at this point. But I had a decent collection but nothing nothing great. Oh, okay. So. Uh, what did your parents do for a living? My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She tried working for a little bit, but she was a much better stay-at-home mom than not. And my dad was a foreman at Chrysler in Sterling Heights. You're the youngest of four, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's funny. It, I, I'm the oldest of four, so I look at my youngest brother, and he's he's like the, he just got into U of M, and he's he's the first person to go to graduate school in our. You went to U of M as well? I went to U of M Dearborn, but I was the first of the four to actually go to college, period. Oh, there you go, right? I went to Oakland University first. I went to Macomb because I couldn't figure out what to do at Oakland, which is completely backwards. Took an 11-year break, no big deal, <laughs> and then went back to U of M, and I chose Dearborn over Ann Arbor because the parking's better there. Oh, okay. That's All part right. of the story. We'll get to that. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was I was getting at is it seems like the youngest kid usually is the one who does, you know – the most, right? Like I had the pattern. I had kids to look up to. My, my brothers and sisters, you know, I learned from A, learned from their mistakes what not to do to piss off mom and dad for right. one thing. But also my sister used to play school with me when I was a kid. I mean, mm. she was trying to teach me stuff. My sister Diane and I were pretty close just being two years apart. So that was part of where my maybe passion for knowledge came from too, was from her. So you got the job uh, at the record store right out of high school, you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, with Mike. Yep. And, uh, and, then you said you went to Oakland, right? Was that was that soon after? Same or? time. Okay. I was doing both at the same time. So I got hired, you know, right out of high school. I was still in high school when I was working for the store, but that fall in 1985, I started going to Oakland University. Mm-hmm. And if memory serves, because it's a long time ago now, I was working full time and going to school full time somehow, or I was working enough because I was there enough. Um, after a few years of that. My my focus started to shift, which is why I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do at Oakland. I was enjoying my record store job a ton. I was learning a ton. I was learning how to treat people. I was learning business, just you know, business stuff. Period. I was taking business and communications at Oakland, so kind of fit in. Right. I still had an interest in radio. Had you, if we back up to high school, had you met me in tenth grade and said, "What do you want to do?" And they were doing that a lot in tenth grade because you had to kind of choose a path. Mm-hmm. I said radio, and in Warren, you may or may not know this, there is a high school radio station at Cousin O High School. And I explored that option in 10th grade. I went and talked to the guy. I still remember the guy's name all these years later. Charles Lampinen was the guy who ran the station at Warren Cousineau. And he was excited that I was interested in the program. But unfortunately, after the conversation went to, so which school do you go to? And I said, Warren Woods Tower. He goes, oh, that's not part of our school district. You can't be part of our station. Uh, and after I graduated, they started letting kids from D. LaSalle, which was the Catholic high school, be part of the program. I'm like, that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> you could have changed my life had I followed it then. Had I followed the path back in 10th grade, I might have gone much sooner into radio than I did. So hmm. I'll let you ask your questions to get me there. But that we have to we have to include that in the backstory because tenth grade John actually made up his mind for a change and said, I want to do I want to be in radio like those kids. Mm-hmm. I was listening to WLLZ, if you remember that rock radio station back in the day. That was where Doug Podell got his start. Oh, okay. Doug? okay. Yeah, so Doug yeah. Doug's been on a bunch of different stations over the years, but they played all sorts of different rock that 
that Riff wasn't playing and W4 Rock Station back then wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed what they were doing. And that, that's, that was like, okay, that's cool. I want to do that. So that was the first – and you were 15, you said, 10th grade. So. About, yeah, about 15, 16, right? So yeah. it was the high school job, the working into the record store, though, just kind of fed the knowledge. I didn't know I was studying for the job I have today, but I was because mm-hmm. I came in as a pop kid. I was a top 40 kid and my tastes weren't really evolving into much until I had coworkers. Like my boss turned me on to a whole bunch of different things I wasn't familiar with, uh, style council, Paul Weller. Jam stuff, that's all one thing. Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe. And then we had coworkers who turned me under what they were into, like the Cocteau Twins and Ska and Louis Jordan and The Damned and The Clash. And I mean, all these things were coming from my coworkers. And I never would have explored that on my own. Right. It was like education. And I'm glad I have it because it comes in very handy where I work. Yeah, well, that's the, that's a wide swath right there that you mm-hmm. just went through. It is, and I love a lot of different things. I mean, if you walked through my my CD room, I have a CD room, and and jumped just to like the letter S, mm-hmm. and and looked through there, you're like you're insane. <laughs> well, you like this and this? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, <laughs> oh man, CD room, that's awesome. Yeah, oh. yeah, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> Remember that addiction thing I talked about? Oh yeah, that's 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 the problem. It's it's an entire room in the house. Do you have a do you have a like a vinyl room too or? I love vinyl and I'm not sad that it's back, but it weighs a lot. And in my house in Livonia, it actually made the floor bow. So I started to sell stuff off way back then uh, before vinyl had its resurgence. So if I could digitize it, I would. If it was available on CD, I'd get it on CD. Though I know vinyl has a warmer sound and it's a better experience. It's not as convenient, especially when you have a large collection and Mm -hmm. limited space. CDs are great for that. And I'm sorry to see them go away, but we'll talk about, as you mentioned, you want to see what I think about where the industry is going. We'll get to that eventually, but yes. Yeah. Well, that's, well, uh, bowing the floor. I'll have to remember that for my own personal, uh, yeah. it, it was, a, I mean, I had a big shelf, the kind of shelf you might have in your garage, but it happened to be, you know, just a little over 12 inches tall in each shelf space. Uh-huh. It was great for records. It was this really heavy duty shelf. I still have the shelf, but it only has two rows of the five full. So it doesn't bow the floor. <laughs> Well, um, so going back, uh, it sounds like you kind of you you already knew what you wanted to do. You had a job that you liked, and you still went to college anyway. Was well, of that course. just kind of like a was there? What were you thinking with that? Like, was it just sort of this is what you do in the eighties? Yeah, that is mm-hmm. what you did, and mm-hmm. I think it still is today. Although, if you ask me now, I think kids should probably figure out something they want to do, and if it's a trade, go for it. Because right now, there's not a lot of people being interested in plumbing, electricians, that, that sort of thing that makes. an hour, which is as opposed to people who go to college to get a degree in marketing and make 20 bucks an hour maybe if you're lucky. So if you're smart and you like fixing things, you do that. I don't like fixing things. I'm not good at fixing things. I'll try, but I'm not good at it. So in hindsight, I wish I had been interested in something other than that. But college was what you did to figure out how to get your job. You couldn't get a job, as I found out later, without a degree. So college was natural. Everyone else I knew was going to college. I went to Oakland with all my friends. I just didn't live there like they did. I didn't have that live at college experience until I moved away, which mm-hmm. I will get to as part of your questions. But Well, so you uh, – how long were you at Oakland before you went to Macomb then? It was about three years. They, they wanted me to make up my mind. Mm-hmm. What do you want to get your degree in? I don't know. <laughs> they actually have a radio station there and at the time it was a – Basically, a downstairs to upstairs station. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could hear it in the dorms. It's an FM signal now, and it actually has a, a fair reach. But when I did it, I don't ever count it as part of my experience because I only vaguely remember doing it. Mm-hmm. I know that they had sort of a card file system, and you had to play an A and a B and a C. You could pick whatever you want out of that that file. So if it was, you know, the Proclaimers happened to be in the B category or whatever, you could play whatever you wanted off the album. Uh. But 
it was different. I just I, – I never felt like I was reaching anybody. So it, I never really counted as – I did radio. It's there, back in my head there. But I don't count radio until I get to college round two, three technically. <laughs> so mm-hmm. anyway. Um, so what did you do at Macomb then? What was the – Macomb, I was just making sure I finished a degree of some sort. And so I continued the whole concept of business and communications. I do remember taking some radio classes there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably, again, too young to remember Alan Allman from WNC. Oh, no. I remember him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they always thought that I had a similar voice to him. And I, did. I don't. <laughs> but they always, always made me do like the announcer parts in our like radio productions. You're the announcer. Okay, fine. <laughs> Starlight. Oh, yeah, exactly. Come on. Star bright. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. If you say my eyes are beautiful because they're looking at you. Anyway, so I mean I did do radio and communications classes just because I was still interested but it wasn't – I wasn't looking for jobs in that field. Mm-hmm. I was doing it because I was interested in it. I, I've been a mobile dish jockey since high school actually. I was doing my own pep rallies. The high school's pep rallies, not mine. Clearly, I don't have pep rallies for myself. <laughs> That'd be weird. Uh, but I was renting equipment at the time until I got enough – you know, enough jobs to buy my own equipment. My first wedding was my cousin Doug's wedding. So I've been doing weddings for over 30 years, but now that's just a back, you know, part of what I do. It's just something I do on the side. It's fun. It's easy. I have the skills. I have the music. I have the equipment. It's, it's just, it's fun. Cool. I don't want to do it every weekend though. Yeah. Well, I mean, so what were you doing uh, while you were after Macomb then? Like, because you said you took an 11 year break between well, Macomb and. Yeah. You know. So so the record store job worked out well. I mean, I, I, I was the head buyer and manager at one point. And when that became not enough for me, because as a kid, you're kind of hungry, right? And you remember being a 20 or something year old kid and like, what's next? What's next? Well, the, the only next thing was for me to kill the owner. And I loved him as my best friend. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So I I had to go before we before I got too frustrated, I had to get out of there. And. As the head buyer, I talked to my vendors and just was curious what could what are my other options. So my domestic supplier, one of them was in Connecticut, and one of my import suppliers was in Miami, and they were both hiring for a buyer position, which I was at the time at the record store. So I inter- interviewed for both. I flew out to Connecticut, flew out to Miami, and I got job offers at both. And this is you know back in the time when those things were possible for me. <laughs> and strangely, I had to make my decision about around the same time, which job do I want? Well, I figure – where are people more likely to visit me? Miami. Okay, I'll take that job. So I went to go work for an import supplier in Miami, and they didn't have a spot for me right away. So I was in the warehouse for a while learning learning you know, how they run things, and then eventually I got to be the buyer. And I shared duties with the co-buyer, and we would trade off who was in charge of what countries. Now, this was a company that bought import CDs or maybe some vinyl, but not so much back then, or other goods from all over the world, England, Germany, Japan, China, Canada, Australia. That's that's where we sourced our goods and we sold them to independent record stores like the one I used to work for or chains. And I loved it. I really loved the job and, and it was a perfect job for me. Our Canadian supplier, however, was not very useful to me. When we worked – when I worked at the record store, we used to trade with one in Windsor called Dr. Disc. And they're still around but they're not a chain anymore. They're independently owned. And Dr. Disc would be servicing our Canadian – excuse me, our, our customers in a way that 89X at the time would play things that – only Canadians could buy because they weren't released in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, Canadian listeners who sh- might have shot the Dr. Disc couldn't buy these records in America unless they came across the border. So basically, we worked out a, a balance sheet and we traded records back and forth, CDs, for things that each store needed. I remember that when I was in, in Miami. I thought they were a good supplier for us. I mean, maybe they can suggest where I can get a better service for my Canadian goods for this company I'm working for. They wanted to do it themselves. And so, okay, sure, why not? 
It was much better service, much better pricing. Everything was better about it for a couple of months. And I asked the guy who was running the store, have you thought about doing this on a larger scale? You're doing a great job. Even though you've got this chain of record stores you're running, you might want to consider doing this. He says, I have thought about it, but I don't, I don't have anybody to run it. Hmm. Or the phone raised my hand. <laughs> uh, I'm coming home for Thanksgiving if you'd like to meet. So we met at Thanksgiving. We basically hashed out a plan to start a business on the U.S. side selling Canadian, import, Canadian imports, just like I was working for a company that sold imports from all over the world. But I was going to do that on a wholesale level with his money mm-hmm. on the U.S. side. And that was cool. I got to run a business for about five years with no real risk to me other than if it didn't work out, I had to find another job. And it went great. It was fantastic. It was a lot of fun, and I found a way to give customers a break on things they were actually buying from the UK or Germany because the relationship that Canada has with those countries, if you think about politically speaking, who's on the money in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. It's the queen. So they they were able to source things from those countries at a much better price than the company I was working for. So, hey, I was, I was kind of beating them, which was kind of cool. But four years of climbing up, thanks to a Sarah McLaughlin CD that was Canadian only at the time when uh, she was really hot. Was that surfacing? No, that was a Rarities, B-Sides, and other stuff. Oh, really? I uh. literally sold about 10,000 of those myself. Wow. So I had independent record stores. I also had chains like Harmony House, Manifest Records in Columbia, South Carolina, Newbury Comics in Boston. These were customers of mine. I would just sell import CDs. Never had – never got busy enough to have more than one employee, but I had an employee and I ran this business by myself and I had my – the record store owner in London, Ontario, mm-hmm. to turn to. Like, I need a little help with this, and he would help. But it was a great experience. I got to run my own business, and I did great. I turned on a computer, and I taught myself how to use QuickBooks. I figured out what else Excel can do for me other than <laughs> quick spreadsheet stuff, and it was a great experience. But when you have four years of climbing and then the, the industry changes, that that was nothing I could have done anything about. Napster was a big factor in what happened to us, and so was Best Buy. Mm-hmm. Best Buy's nine ninety nine pricing structure at the time was a dollar less than my stores were buying us a big hit CD. Let's say a Metallica album came out. They'd pay $11 wholesale for it. Best Buy would sell it to you for $10. Well, how are they supposed to compete with that? And right. then, of course, Napster, people just stopped buying music altogether. So, boom, done. Four years in, that fourth year into the fifth year, we were done. So closed the business, went back to college after realizing that no one wanted to hire a guy with an associate degree in general studies. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it's, you, it's cool, though, that you kind of got to experience that. Like the 90s <clears throat> was sort of like the last chance for, for, for people to want to, to do that sort of thing, right? Yeah, Where you're selling physical music and right. being able to make a living at it. Um, but uh, so at U of M, then how did that go and what were you thinking there? Well, I had a friend help me decide what to do. I mean, after I wasn't getting any job offers, with a, which I thought was an impressive resume, head buyer, manager, ran my own business. These are things that look good on a resume, in my opinion. Yeah. But no one would hire me. So my degree was probably what was holding me back. So I got encouraged to go back to school several times by my wife and to try and pick something to focus on other than just do the same thing I did last time and just spin my wheels. And, I don't want to do it. My friend Brian, who happened to be in a marketing position, said, well, what did you like most about running your business? And I said, it was, at the time, faxes were relevant. It was creating the facts that I would send to my customers to tell them about what new releases they, would, they should pre-order from me. It was that creation part, that creative part of figuring out why you would want to buy this new Blue Rodeo CD, which won't, may or may not ever come out in the U.S., mm-hmm. and typing up those, you know, those faxes. Well, that's marketing. I always thought marketing was sales, and sales was the thing I liked the least about what I did, quite honestly, and I still don't see myself as somebody who wants to go into sales. But on the other hand, the other side of sales is customer service, and I loved customer service. I love helping people. 
So marketing was the degree I chose. I chose U of M Dearborn over Ann Arbor because the parking was better. I mentioned that, I think. Um, it's, just, it's a good school. It's a, it's a school that's going to look good on a resume no matter what city is after the U of M part, whether right. it's Flint right. or Dearborn or Ann Arbor. It doesn't matter. It says U of M. It's recognizable. So that was a good decision on my part if, if, if we're talking about how I got to where I'm at because – I don't know if it was the first or second year I was there, but a fellow student needed some notes and she was in a couple of my classes. I recognized her because she was cute. And I said, you don't want to try and read my writing. Give me your email address. And so she wrote down WHFRPD at HFCC.edu. Now, I, I expected something more along the lines of first name, last name at Hotmail or whatever was popular at the time, AOL. But no, I immediately looked at the first four letters and said, do you work at a radio station? Because I didn't know. <laughs> never asked her. Never really had a conversation with her. And she said, yeah, it's right next door at Henry Ford Community College. Hmm. Oh, yeah. It's a one-credit-hour class. You can take the class, make a demo. They may put you on the air. And 10th grade, John said, hey, <laughs> you, <laughs> Finally. Always, you always wanted to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I immediately, in the spring semester, which was the next semester, I took the one-credit-hour class at Henry Ford. And I volunteered immediately. And they loved my demo. I No one was doing folk music at the time. So I got to do the folk music director position because no one else was doing I had to build up the catalog in there somehow. So I started putting together playlists and emailing out what I was playing that week. And people started to respond by sending more CDs. So that that built up what had been dormant for a while at that station. They had a lot of indie rock and jazz and there was a rap show and all sorts of it's, – it's a college radio station. They have a variety of things. But not a lot of people were doing the singer-songwriter folky thing. So I basically built that up for them and – I spent quite a few years there, more years than people realized because there was a crossover at one point. But it was about three or four years into it when I was starting to get signals that maybe, I mean, I was still finishing my degree at U of M Dearborn. That was still going to happen no matter what happened. But things were happening that were pointing to maybe radio should be your choice. So there was a contest that, uh, which used to be Magic 105, was doing. And it was called Who Wants to Be a Traffic Reporter? You might think of what time of the <laughs> popularity of a TV show that might have been during. Um, <laughs> my sister heard about it. And she said, you should enter that. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, that's not really what I'm trying to do. Just enter. What do you have to lose? So because I had a studio available to me at the at the Henry Ford, I just did a quick reading of a traffic report and sent it in. I didn't. I wasn't listening to the station, but they did have Jim Harper as their morning host. And that's a guy I'd always admired and just wasn't really listening to that kind of music at that time. So one of my high school friends happened to hear when they played my demo on the air and she she called me or emailed me or whatever she did and said, Jim Harper just said they should stop the contest after playing your, your demo. Oh, like, wow. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's, that's high praise from somebody who's been in radio for a long time. Yeah. So I ended up making the top five in the contest. It was four women and me. And I kind of knew already at that point I wasn't going to win. It didn't matter what I did. They wanted a, a female co-host to go with a male afternoon host, Jim Pellucci. So I didn't win. Kristen Sakuchi won. I remember her name. And I wrote her a quick congratulatory email. And she said, I can't believe you didn't win, which was also like, wow, that's really nice. Yeah. So there was also contests that uh, WHFR was encouraging me to enter. There's the Michigan Association of Broadcasters and Michigan Association of Educational Broadcasters. They both have awards that you can enter to you know, be part of. So the MABs are the bigger one. That's the entire state going against each other. And my first and only time in the air check category, which is just on-air stuff, just regular breaks, I took third place, which is pretty good for somebody who wasn't really taking it that serious. I was just doing it for fun. The MAEBs, which are a little easier to win, I took. I got a lot of golds. Golds and silvers were the things. I was like, well, that's pretty good. That's kind of cool. The guy that ran the station, who was the station advisor at WHFR, also said something very key to me. He said, John, I get a lot of people through here. I don't get a lot of people through here with the gift. I think you have the gift. Wow. Which is, oh my gosh. I'm like, All these things are kind of happening while I'm like, all right, fine. Well, when I got married, I moved to Livonia. 
And at that point, I discovered a whole new radio world. I was a Detroit radio guy growing up. I didn't know there was an Ann Arbor radio. Right. So I, side. I find this, this station, Ann Arbor's 1071, which is playing kind of similar things to what I'm doing at my college show. They're more of the singer-songwriter types, Carrie Noble, Ari Hess, Stephen Kellogg, and the Sixers. A little, little less mainstream than what I'm hearing on Detroit radio. And I loved every minute of it. I thought, that's where I'd like to work. So with very little experience, I sent a demo and a resume to the program director and got no response, which was absolutely no surprise, but I had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I get on his email list and he sends out an email one day and saying, uh, basically doing a run for cancer, looking for people to sponsor his run, needing donations. Fine. Wrote him back. I'd love to sponsor your run. I just lost my mom, but I don't have a job right now. If you give me a two-week trial at your radio station, I'll give you my first paycheck. Wow. Guess what happened? I got interviewed and hired on the spot. And so my three-year anniversary – or three-year, three-year – 13-year anniversary is coming up on September 10th, I think. I'd have to look uh, it up. A couple of weeks. Yeah. So it's coming up quick and uh, I never look back. It's always just been, okay, here I am. And I'm, I'm, I had other jobs along the way, but – that's how I stumbled into radio. Not that you asked that. I don't know. Maybe I jumped far. No, that too was far perfect, ahead. man. This is this is this is uh, <laughs> it's gold. This is you. great. I'm just sitting here listening. The, um, so, two, that was 2005. Then you said if it was 13 years, 2005 so. is when I started. So that's years. crazy because you, you know, you were in your 30s or you were pushing 30. Right. It's not. Right. It's not that's, a time to start a career in radio. It's a really yeah, bad time, actually. Yeah, but it's it's interesting though that it because most people want, if they have an idea as to what they want to do when they're in high school and then they don't do it, you know in their 20s, they never do it, right? right? Whereas you, it came around anyway, you know? It was, so it was it sort found of like, me. yeah, exactly. It chose you. Well, if you think about what I told you that I did prior to that, though, the record store, the wholesale business, I mean, those were those were filling my Related. head with the knowledge. Yeah. The kind of station that I work at is, is a music-intensive radio station. You know, we do talk about the music. We just don't play the music and talk about the promotions. We actually talk about the music. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. There's no better station for me to be at with what I did prior to this. But there's also an element that I skipped over in there. For nine months, I was editing music for a dance studio. Uh. And that taught me a very valuable skill also for radio because you have to know how to edit commercials or put together promotional announcements and things like that. So the skills that I got doing that came in very handy as well. It all it all fits together somehow. The difficult part is that it's not easy to make a living in radio. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I've, I've heard that many yeah. times. <laughs> um, so – Tell me about Ann Arbor because you you told me and I didn't I never knew this but you said when you got in here you were part time up until recently at one oh seven one you never felt like you were part time like, well <laughs> I've been on the air seven days a week for more years than I can remember I don't remember exactly when they made me seven days a week but I was an easy fit into well first they started me in overnights midnight to six I was mm-hmm. I was doing that and then eventually when uh, seven to midnights opened up I got to do that. Uh, when the economy was down and they were laying people off, they let off still somebody I think is one of our best personalities, uh, Mark Copeland, who's on weekends now, and they slid me into his midday slot, which was 10 to 3. And I'm like, OK, but but still you know, using me as a part-time employee somehow. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just the miracle of radio. I, I don't know that I ever deserved it, but I, I felt like I got better. I mean I was pretty good. I was good enough to get those compliments I got. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I've definitely gotten better over the years. There's a confidence level that comes with doing something so long. Like I mentioned, I've been a mobile disc jockey for 30 years. There was a time I would get really nervous before somebody's wedding. And I would worry and I would just freak out like I'm going to screw up. I don't do that anymore because it's confidence. Confidence will go a long way in everything right? from driving to your job. And I, I mentioned off the air too, I've, I've battled my demons. I'm, you know, I'm battle depression. But when I turn on that microphone to talk about the music and to talk to the listeners, it goes away. It's just, I'm in the moment. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. 
and whether I can ever make a real honest living at it. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to bash where I'm making my, my, my money, but I'm not. It's just that it's not a job that requires – people are nervous with public speaking and they, they admire people who do what you and I do, and which is talk. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Most of the time, I'm in a room by myself talking to myself. <laughs> so I don't really know what's so glamorous about that. But Well, I think, I think it's, it's got to do with like they can't do it, so they look at somebody who can. They're just like, well, it must, yeah. be, you know, it must be this great skill. When, it must be hard. Yeah. Well, talking about music, I'd do, I'd do it for free. If, <laughs> you know, I, just, yeah. I, I know, exactly. <laughs> don't tell people. <laughs> it's wrong. Well, I want to talk about the acoustic brunch because um, okay. that was what I, I – like, I, just so the the audience knows, I interned uh, at one oh seven one Ann Arbor Radio. It's four different stations, or yeah. at least it was when I was Still there. Is. And uh, so that was how I became uh, aware of it. And um, and then after that was in the winter of two thousand nine. And then after it, I worked at a at where I continued to work at Kensington. And on Sundays, I would have my my sort of block of radio shows I would listen to. It was Rob Reinhardt, then it was you, yep. and then it was Garrison Keillor. Oh. So uh, I just want to talk about acoustic brunch and 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 how how that came about and how you how you started that. Well, first of all, thank you for like making a point to listen to the show because that means a lot to me. I used to do that with Rob Reinhardt's show. I still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and appointment radio. I mean, that's kind of what it's referred to as, I guess, in some ways. But mm-hmm. that means a lot that you go out of your way. It means a lot to any listener who like plans their Sunday around so they don't miss part of the acoustic brunch or all of the acoustic brunch. That's incredible because I do put a lot of time programming that. I mean, it's a it's a passion. But when I was in the college radio thing, I did something called Acoustic Alternative. So this is really just an extension of that. Um, when we had a program director by the name of Brad Savage, he allowed us to kind of open up our Sundays to be – because we had Martin Van Dyke from WDET. He had just been hired by us and people were expecting him to do something like he used to do at WDET. That's some reasonable expectations I think for our listeners. So – if memory serves, we kind of built it around that. We already had E-Town and Acoustic Cafe, but hey, let's add a few more things. So we added fine-tuning, which is what Martin does, and we added my show, and we added the local show. Actually, the local show was already there, too. That was homegrown at the time with Adam Ray. Mm-hmm. Now it's Treetown Sound. And then you've got Under the Radar Radio with Mark Copeland and Sonic Bliss with Mark Copeland. So Sonic Bliss was kind of similar to something that 96.3 used to do years ago, and Mark worked there with somebody who was doing that show. And his Under the Radar Radio thing is just kind of an indie rock look at what's going on in the music world and some maybe forgotten classics. So it's it's a lot of cool programming that happens on Sunday on the station. I was lucky enough somehow after being there a few years to be given a show. Mm-hmm. Initially, there was a some input on the programming side. They didn't let me program it completely by myself. It was pick some songs you want to hear and we'll intersperse some familiars and da, 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 da. Okay, that's fine. But after a while, they realized he knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for years. He did it. He's still doing it because I, I actually worked at WHFR volunteering for probably another seven years after I got hired. I forget exactly how long, six or seven years after I got hired by 1071. I was just, it's no big deal. When I still lived in Livonia, it was an easy commute to Dearborn and Ann Arbor. It was a half an hour in either direction. It didn't really matter. So I just did them both because it wasn't like people in Dearborn can hear the station very well from Ann Arbor. Right. And certainly the people in Ann Arbor could not hear the Dearborn station. Uh, so no one ever really thought about it. I had one guy who knew <laughs> for sure. He was a fan of both shows and he would listen to both shows. And he was like, you're the hardest working man in folk music. So that was cool. But the acoustic brunch was just kind of born out of, obviously this guy knows the acoustic stuff. So let's let him play there. And then eventually I got, I got to have a, a fair amount of control over what happens. And now one of my big joys is having live guests on the program. So I was going to say, cause like, you know, was acoustic cafe around before you, oh, you started acoustic? Did you kind of like, 
you know, was there any not conflict, but were you, you kind of like I have to just differentiate myself from this from Acoustic Cafe? I didn't actually want to call it Acoustic Brunch. I'll be honest. I wanted to call it Naked Brunch, <laughs> kind of like Naked Lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my program director at the time was a little nervous about using the word naked on the air. I mean, uh, I just thought it'd be clever. We have an intelligent listening community there in Ann Arbor. They would have probably picked up on the yeah on the thing, but. A similar name confuses people sometimes, and it still does today. Oh, I love your show, Acoustic Cafe. Thanks. I'll tell <laughs> Rob. You know, I'll tell, I do too. I mean, he really was an influence on what I wanted to do in radio in the first place because I was listening to his program, and he turned me on to a whole bunch of things in that in that world. And he has branched. If if you listen to the show today, how much of it is actually really acoustic anymore? That's true. About fifty yeah. percent, maybe. So he's branching into many different areas on his program, and I admire that. When I try to do that, it doesn't always go over so well, but. I do my best to still kind of do what I did at the college radio level with a commercial spin on it. So it's familiar names. Even when I was doing my college show, I have such a big collection, it's hard to narrow down what you want to play. I started basing it on, well, who's coming to town? That makes it easy. I can promote shows. People enjoy when I do that. And so I still do that today. I build every week's playlist based first looking who's coming in the next week or two. All right, do I have anything acoustic by them? Okay, yes, I do. Perfect. I'll play that, that, that. And then what else do I have? Oh, this is new. I like this. And that's how I program the show. I, I, I Something new that, that fits, who's coming, or a session with a, with a studio guest. And it's it's a labor of love, and I, I enjoy doing it every week. Well, and I, I noticed that uh, you you uh, – Rob Reinhardt is way more like national. He does a lot. Whereas you it's get, syndicated. You, yeah, you do uh, – well, but what I mean by that is like he uses like national acts, whereas you uh, do a lot of local – Acts and I, I really liked that about you because I was I was involved in the in the scene at the time and I'd like to go to shows and I and listening to you I'd be able to be oh Luciana Costa you know mm-hmm. I'll, do, I'll go check her out or something you know whatever's going on at the Ark you know right um, so was that intentional or is that just kind of how it worked out um, it's a little bit of both I, I did want to support my my scene because it needs its support it needs a somebody to be a champion for them and if I found something that I felt needed a voice I was giving it a voice but it's also it's a little bit more convenient to have those people and I definitely have national acts mm-hmm. um, so this is airing live now but eventually it will be podcast so people might hear it like after the fact mm-hmm. uh, guests that will be on the show in the month of September include the band from Ireland called We Banjo 3 the band from England called Scars on 45 local bluesman Leith El Sadi will be on the program in September and a local singer by the name of Katie Peterson all will be on the program in the month of September. These are all things I've planned out already, things that are going to happen. And that's, I mean, you've got world known bands and right. local favorites. And that's, I mean, there's, there's to me, it's, it, it's no different. They're both really talented groups of people. I mean, is there a better guitar player in Ann Arbor than Leith or even Michigan? No, probably not. I don't think so in my opinion. Um, you know, Katie's a great up and comer that I've been enjoying getting to know a little bit. She's got a new record coming out. She wants to talk about that. Perfect. Scars on 45. We have a long relationship with them at the station and we banjo three doesn't actually fit what we do at one Oh seven, but I know because <laughs> I like them and they will sell out two nights at the arc that there is a built in audience for that. If, they, if people find out that they're going to be on the program, they might tune in for that. And they're fun guys and I've had them in before. And it's, you know, to, to me, it all makes sense. It doesn't necessarily make sense to everybody. But it all fits the world of what is acoustic music because they're going to come in and perform, right? So that's acoustics. Well, uh, let's talk about the ARC thing because you do uh, – I also knew you as a guy who would introduce the, the bands at the ARC. True. Um, so how did you get involved with them? Well, the first boss – and it might have been the guy you worked for under Rob Walker was my first boss. And uh, when I was hired, it was, you know, you're going to be on the air. We'll also have you be part of our promotions team. And by that, I'll have you represent the station at, maybe at some events. I'll have you set up you know, banners and whatever. So – one of the first assignments he gave me was, okay, well, we're sponsoring these shows at the Ark. 
want you to go there and put up banners on the ask where you can put them, but put up banners on the wall. And, you know, okay. So the next day after I did my first one, I, well, did you get on stage and bring the act out? I'm like, no. Was I supposed to? He's like, yeah. Like, well, you never told me that. So I had to start working with the managers and let them know, okay, you don't know me because, you know, probably don't hear me at midnight, but I'm on the air at 1071. And so after a while, all the managers started to recognize me and they started to let me do the announcements. Sometimes we'd share. And after a while, they got more comfortable with me. And some of them actually were like, oh, good, you're here. I don't want to do the announcement tonight. (laughs) So public speaking, we talked about that, how that's a big fear for people. I didn't really love it either. But Mm -hmm. after doing it enough times, in a familiar place, it becomes easy. It becomes comfortable. That's a home to me. That's I'm I'm at home in that building. I actually have, if you go to the Ark and find the sound booth, the seats that are right next to the sound booth, one of the seats has my name on it because I, uh. I paid for a plaque, which it was a, it was a cost that I didn't bear the entire cost for. The guy that is one of the main sound guys there, Joe. Oh, Joe Giza. That's right. He was he's been on this podcast twice. There you go. Yeah. Joe encouraged me to do a GoFundMe for that seat because it was $1,000 to sponsor the seat. There was no way I was going to have $1,000 to sponsor the seat. I could come up with some money, but he said, do a GoFundMe. People love you. They'll pay for it. People did. And I had to come <laughs> up with about 250 but I have my name enshrined at my favorite place to see live music because I support the place. It's, a, it's just a great listening room environment. The people there are great. If I think about the people that I've met in Ann Arbor in the 13 years working there, some of my favorite people are either volunteers there or employees there mm-hmm. or people who play there. So it's it's kind of the epicenter of my love for that town. I love Ann Arbor. I don't live there. I wish I could afford to live there. But I feel like I'm at home there. I feel that those are my people for yeah. whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really necessarily feel that way when I go back to Warren or you know, Livonia. I lived in for, I don't know, 13 years before we moved to Plymouth. But I never feel as home as I do when I'm in Ann Arbor. Well, Ann Arbor is kind of its own little oasis there, you know, in the valley. You know, it's 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 where Slavonia is can, and Warren are connected, you know, to everything else. Yeah. They have borders, but they're, you know, you're driving from city to city, whereas Ann Arbor is like surrounded by, you know, there's Ipsy to the east and all that and Dexter off to the west. But it really is its own thing. I, I, I love it too. And the arc is really its own. I've never experienced a, a, another venue that's exactly like the arc. No, I, you won't. Anywhere. You'll find other listening rooms. Mm-hmm. There's there's something in that room that is just unique. That's it's the people that come in. It's the the respect for the musicians. And if you get somebody who comes in who's never been there before and they're pl- they're talking, everybody turns around and looks at them, gives them dirty looks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, there there's a there's a behavior that is expected there. Now you probably notice that they've changed their their lineup a little bit too, and they're bringing in more rock acts, which is perfect because you have a young college age crowd mm-hmm. that's not going to discover that place unless you bring them artists that they're interested in. So you may have your old folkies who still like to see their their classics. And sure, there's definitely a place for that there. But they're also building the younger audience by bringing in some of those younger bands or some of the bands from the 90s that no longer can sell big rooms. You know, they might have told the Wet Sprocket there instead of at the Royal Oak Music Theater, right. which they did that too. But I mean, it really depends on where they're at in their careers. They can bring those acts in, fill the room, introduce people to the room and then say, hey, don't forget to come back for this other cool singer-songwriter who's coming or whatever. It's you know, once, once you're in the room, you might go, what else do they have here? Right, right. Well, they got that wall with just, you know, you see Rufus Wainwright and Patty Griffin and Sean Colvin and all all these people up on that, on, in the on the in the pictures that they got on their wall, the people that have played there. That's actually people who play the Ann Arbor Folk Festival. Some of those people have played there. Those pictures are all from the Folk Festival. Oh, really? And the Folk uh, Festival, as you know, is their big fundraiser. And that's a hill. So That's at the hill, hill on yeah. right? But some of those people do, like, most of the times the – like if you look at the lineup for the Folk Festival, the top people won't come back and play the ARC, but the bottom ones will. Uh, They'll get booked for shows at the ARC later in the year. 
but you won't find necessarily if you know if Ben Folds is the headliner that year, he's probably not going to come back and play the arc because he's Ben Folds. Right, right. <laughs> but if you get you know We Banjo Three opened there uh, one year, and now they're playing two nights because they built an audience by playing in front of people. So well, and just like the intimacy of the like one of my favorite bands ever is Over the Rhine, oh, yeah. and I I try to never miss them whenever they come to the arc, and they've played Hill too, you know, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, uh, Peter Bradley Adams, who was just at the Ark. Were you uh, there? Because I was there. I was not. No, I could not Why make you it. There? I, I I wanted to be, but I, I oh. could not make it. Um, I was there. I mean, he was there last year. Okay. Um, I did get to see him then. But uh, there's another. It's again you, that type of intimacy. I, you can't find it anywhere else. No, you know, no, that's true. Uh, in this area that I'm aware of, anyway. I'll so. tell you off the air a few other places you might want to explore, but we'll just <laughs> oh. you know, because we're we're giving some love to the Ark right now on purpose. But all right, uh, but yeah, there are other listening rooms, but they're not 400 seaters; they're more like 100 seaters. And mm-hmm. there's there's other places to go. You have to travel to get to them, though. There's an hour direction to Lake Orion, or you can go out to Spring Lake, and there's a venue out there. And there's you know, there's house concerts too. If you don't know about those, you need to find out about those, my friend. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I worked a night shift for a long time, so I've been on days for uh, a couple months now. And I'm sort of trying to – I want to get out again. You Reacclimate know? yourself to what's happening. Exactly. Please do. So I wanted to ask you about like – because you, you mentioned like with the arc, they're bringing in these more rock-oriented acts and then not so much the folky stuff anymore. Well, they're, 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 they're splitting the, yeah. splitting it. But um, I wanted to ask you just about like how like music – and this is such a general question. I know it's such a broad you know, way to paint this, but like just music in general, and I guess radio too, like where do you see it going? Like, I mean, what's, where is it right now and where do you see it going? You know? Well, radio is still in every car for now. (laughs) And we do have a lot of options, obviously as listeners, a younger audience is probably where you want to ask that question because that, I mean, not that I can't answer the question, but that's what we don't really know. That seems that they are still listening to some radio, but they're definitely, more interested in listening to a streaming version of radio than a traditional version of radio. So they're they're probably not going to stick with you for very long. The time spent listening thing that they look at when they look at ratings is is going to be a little shorter with those people or just a little different. Um, Radio will still always be here. I think if you don't have localism, there's, you're out of touch. I mean, people will young, young, think of yourself as a 15 year old. Did you really care about the news at 15? No, of course you didn't. I didn't know what it was, really. Right, right. <laughs> you, did, you didn't really care because it didn't matter to you. But when you became older and you started to vote or you started to consume things or you started to live in a society where it was important to know what was going on, your local information comes from either your television or your radio. And the radio is the most convenient of those two. You just turn on your car and it's there. Or you maybe you have one in your bathroom like I do. I don't know. I turn it on every day. I have, I have radios in every room of my house. Mm-hmm. And that's not a joke. I, I like to know what's going on. So I think most people are still like that. I mean, we have a we have a a pretty interesting news cycle as of late, thanks to a certain someone who we won't mention by name because I don't want to give him any love because <laughs> I don't. Um, <laughs> but that that drives people to listen too because what is he doing now? Oh no, you know <laughs> that kind of stuff. You're going to get that from your radio. But again, the younger audience isn't necessarily interested in that now. I still think radio is going to be relevant in five years, ten years. I don't know. How it changes necessarily. I mean, your your people are streaming. We're streaming. If people want to listen that way, they can. If they love a station and they live they live in Ann Arbor, but they're going on vacation in Peru, <laughs> they can listen to it there too. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. There are a lot more choices though. There's there's podcasts which seem to be very popular. You said you were listening to books on Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's a gazillion different things that want your attention. But think about what what ties memories to your your life. 
is usually music, right? If you, if you can point to a time in high school when you're having a good time with your friends, I bet in, the, in your head there's also a soundtrack to that, isn't there? Yeah, well, you can. I can remember I have my top 25 list of my favorite bands. I can remember where I was when I heard them all for the first time and like how I got into them. And it really just weaves itself into the fabric of your reality. You know? right. so, so yeah, definitely. And, and what's great about it is you can do it you don't you can be doing other tasks while you're listening that's that's one of the reasons that i think it's it's going to be fine too both music and radio yeah so i mean the music industry isn't a great place for anybody to make a living right now no musicians included uh i know a lot of them and they they struggle and they're also the first people that uh, anybody turns to when they're doing a benefit of some sort hey can you play this a benefit for me for free <laughs> Took all that time to write that song and record it and pay for it myself. And now you want me to play for free? I mean, it happens. And that's this is what we expect of our entertainers, but we don't seem to reward them by buying their music. And that should change because we're just going to lose them. That's going to be a segment of, of our population that I just can't afford to do it anymore. Yeah. I may love it, but I can't afford to do it anymore. Well, it's kind of like a, you know every industry is a microcosm of the economy as a whole, which is sure. you have – a small group of people that are doing insanely well and then everybody and then this sort of gradually, you know, tapering off pyramid of people that are just doing struggling more and more the farther down you go. And I, I musicians, I, I think, I mean, like you said, ever since Napster, ever since the, the early 2000s, when people realized, hey, we don't have to pay for this stuff. We don't yeah. have to pay for the recordings. That was really the you know that was the earthquake you know and it's it never it never it, it will never be the same you, you can't know? go back from that no no i mean they tried with paid services but people still find a way around you watch videos on youtube instead those yeah. are free I mean, well it's interesting because like you remember you notice how like we started off with 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 records right and then we went to cd well then we went to a track and tape <laughs> and then we went to cd and then everybody thought it was going to be smaller CDs right. for a very brief period in, yeah. in like the late '90s, and then it, it was MP3s, and now it's just streaming. And I've I'm always like three or four years behind everybody else. I've noticed, but like I stream my music now. That's how I listen to. It. I I do collect vinyl, and I still have my CD collection. But I don't buy. Uh, I'll buy vinyl, but it's it's for an album that I really really like. I'm not going out and just and I'm not discovering new music that way. Whereas the streaming is how I. That's how I listen to it 90% of the time. I think um, most people are like you now. I am yeah. not. I am still a CD consumer. I, I get uh, disappointed when somebody doesn't put it out on CD. But really? I do because I still like the physical nature of the CD. I can read the liner notes even though it's getting hard to read as I get older. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely agree, man. And I remember when it started, like the I, I was like, you know, I, I like the convenience of this. I have I have Apple Music, so I have a, an iPhone, but mm -hmm. I like the accessibility but I miss having it in my hand. Like if my internet connection goes down, I can still listen to my music. Whereas that, you know, that's not true now. But th that's why I hang on to my CD collection. I have a trunk of CDs, and I'm, sure. I'll, I'll hang on to those forever. And I still do buy CDs. But again, it's only when you know, you know, like Clutch, one of my favorite bands, has a new CD coming out next month. I'll go and I'll buy that CD because I want a physical copy of it, right. and I also want to su support them. That's a good reason to do it right uh -oh. there because they they spent time. Recording that, writing that, there's a lot of labor of love that goes into that. Right. If you want them to continue doing their job, you should pay them to do their job. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely. why ticket prices went up too, by the way, if you didn't notice. Mm -hmm. Ticket prices to a concert are way more because he's aren't making them any money. Well, man, I got to say, like, I wanted to go to Pearl Jam in Chicago oh, the yeah. other week. And know, a bunch it, of people went, yeah. Yeah, well, it was like the cheapest tickets were like 150 bucks for like the nosebleed set. I was like, holy crap, I can't. I'm, the, the seats in front of the stage were four grand, just under four grand. And I'm like, who can, who's paying for that? Somebody is, Somebody, obviously. Yeah. So, but it's it's not me. Everything's right. changing because of because of the way people are consuming the music. But yeah, it is. It's kind of sad to see that. I still encourage when I'm talking to a young 
artist who is doing the singer songwriter thing, playing playing the arc, playing small rooms, playing listening rooms, you may want to consider pressing some CDs just because at the end of a show and you're greeting people, if they don't have something to have you sign to remember you by, maybe it's the first time they saw you as an opening act, they're going to walk away and go, what was their name again? And they won't have anything to remember. If you have a CD available, even if it's a five-song EP and you sign it, they're going to be like, oh, I made a connection with her. She was really nice. Definitely. So there is still value to me, at least from an emerging artist standpoint, to have that. But I don't know. Does a Taylor Swift still need to put out a CD? Maybe, I guess. I don't know. It still helps to a certain extent, but – I don't know. I, I still prefer the physical media. I'm gonna I'm gonna defend that until I die. Well, that's 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 kind of what I was getting at when I said we we were getting smaller and smaller, and then we went into the digital realm. So, like, can we come out of the digital realm? Is that something that's going to happen? Like, nobody ever thought vinyl was going to come back. And Look here at we what are. it's done. So, vinyl is doing really well, but the price of vinyl is gone. Like, when I walk into a used record store, having worked at one, mm-hmm. and I see a slightly beat up copy of Toto's first album for four dollars. I go, that would have been a dollar at record time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the condition that it's in, that's a dollar. You want $4 for that? Right. And that's <laughs> not, not just inflation either. So That's just people think they can get away with it. Right. Like, no, these – I mean, $3 was the standard price for a used record that was in good condition. It was an older album at the store I worked at. And that same record now can probably pull on $12 at a used store, which is crazy because $8 is what it was new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't like where that's gone. I mean, I like that vinyl is still around. Thank you, Jack White, for helping revive it. I'm gonna I'm gonna point to him as the person who really made it cool again because mm-hmm. he made records cool by making cool records. I mean, not just the music he makes, but what he does to the packaging and the actual vinyl. It's <sighs> Martin Badnock's cousin. So. That's right, <laughs> first cousin, cousin Jack. <laughs> but yeah, that's the industry is changing, and I have no idea what's gonna happen. It's not going anywhere. People are still going to make music whether they make money at it or not. But right. let's – as as a society, let's remember that they need to actually continue making a living at it. If you want them to continue doing it, continue supporting them. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, there's nothing wrong. Like if, if people have to have day jobs and things like that, that grounds you. And I think it may it, – your art can – and your work can uh, can benefit from that because if all of a sudden you're, you're a millionaire, you know, you're, you might you might lose sight of what it was that made you want to do it in the first place, you right. know. Um, but you know, I think you know a lot of people don't have to worry about that happening just because of the the way things are. So, sure. um, well, uh, John, what, what what do you got coming up in the future, man? Is, uh, is there anything you want to promote? Or uh, um, I'm working on it's not as of this moment finalized, but I mentioned the Alzheimer's Association earlier. I am on the committee for the walk, and I'm also. I have a team, and my team is consisting of me only at the moment. Um, but I'm trying to do a fundraiser for that, and I'm trying to put it together. I've got a venue that seems to be willing to work with me. I, unfortunately, the ARC wasn't going to be uh, – <laughs> they couldn't give it to me for free on a Sunday afternoon. I didn't expect it necessarily, but I, I can't afford what they want because I'm trying to raise money. But I think I'm going to be able to throw a benefit at the end of September. My idea is to have four local singer-songwriters do three songs each me interview them on site in front of the audience that is paid and the pay is really a gift to the walk end Alzheimer's uh, and inter- recorded interviews that will eventually air on my acoustic brunch. So it's kind of a cool thing for them. They get interviewed for the show. People that are there get to see it happen and we'll all raise money for an important cause because, I mean, we're all at some point going to be affected by Alzheimer's, whether it's ourselves, our grandparents, our parents. Somebody you know is going to have it. It's not a good one. They haven't figured it out yet, but they're getting close. They think they have actually are close enough that they can honestly say that the first survivor is alive. Really? That means that maybe he's a two-year-old right now, but we'll uh-huh. be able to not let him die from Alzheimer's because it's, it's one of the leading killers. So I'm working on something to help with that. 
Um, I've taken on artist management. This is a fun thing I just started doing recently as well. A friend of mine who I uh, met a couple of years ago, just a musician who wanted me to hear her music and liked my show when she lived in Livonia and uh, became friends and then just recently became a little bit better friends and she said, you want to be my manager? I'm like, I don't know how to do that, but yes, let's try it. So it's <laughs> like the one thing in the music that you haven't, I haven't done, done it. Yet, right? I mean, like, I, the record <laughs> label thing was on my radar when I was at the record store. I briefly worked, I didn't mention that, at the uh, the mailroom at BMG, not the BMG Record Club, but the actual record label. Um, so that was before I went to work in Miami. It was like, eh, maybe I don't want to move to Miami. I'll take this job just to see if I can move up in the world. And how long is it going to take me to be a label rep? It would have taken me a couple of years and I wasn't patient at that point. So um, I, I didn't do artist management, but I'm kind of doing it now in just a fun capacity. I'm not actually – charging her any money yet. And what's her name? Amy Petty. Amy Petty. You've been okay. hearing around the acoustic Yeah, yeah, I recognize that name. Um, so fun fact, I recorded a video of her performing at the Annabur Folk Festival on July 1st. Two weeks later after posting it on Facebook, being shared around, we had over 5,000 views on Facebook only. Nice. I know. That's weird because yeah. most people will go to YouTube to watch a video, right? Well, she eventually, I said, you got to put that up on YouTube. So far, it hasn't had as much success because people already watched it, but we're using that as kind of an introduction. It's a cover. She's doing Brandy Carlisle's The Story, oh. but she's doing it really well. Mm-hmm. And it's a good like, wow, she can sing. Yes, she can. Does she belt it like Brandy or does she do like a quieter? It's a little quieter, but she's got the ability to belt it. She can do she can do opera. I mean, she's classically wow. trained and she has done opera and she will sing that kind of stuff occasionally with symphonies, but she'd rather do the singer songwriter thing, this, you know, sort of sad emotional stuff, which is it's beautiful stuff. And she's writing more music now and I'm I'm giving her a little push. I'm like, You're you're good. You need to you need to feed what you have inside of you because you have a lot of talent. Don't you know? Let it rest. You've been a little quiet for a couple of years now. Let's let's go. Mm-hmm. And so she's she's enjoying having somebody give her that little nudge, like, "Come on!" Yeah. <laughs> and she'll come up with something, and I'll go, "I'll do that." Like she jokingly said, "You should see if you can get me on the Brandy Carlisle thing she's doing in Mexico. She's got this all female, similar to like a little affair, which it's a destination in Mexico." I said, "Okay." And she didn't think I was serious, but I found a contact for Brandy's management. I wrote them a quick email, and they said, "Oh, we're already booked, but you know, I'll check her out anyway." So yeah. I mean, is, she's like, "My gosh, I can't believe in you the did future, that. who knows?" Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not afraid. She's a little like any artist who has some faith in themselves might not do that kind of stuff unless they're super confident. I'm confident. I'm okay with that. I'll try anything to to, to promote her. It's just right now, it's fun. If she ends up making enough money at it. Because of me, then we'll worry about what she can pay me. But for now, I'm just experimenting, and she's experimenting with having me as a manager. So, Amy Petty, correct. All right, check her out. John, thanks so much for being here, man. This has My been pleasure. great to talk to you. I, um, feel, I feel like we could talk for another hour. But. I know we could, yeah. And and and, uh, and we've we've actually gone over. So, but that's a good thing. That's a good <laughs> thing that we. That I love when I'm talking, and, and I look down. I'm like, oh, well, and there's nobody after me tonight, so it's not a big deal. Okay, but, good. Um, but yeah, uh, so thanks so much for coming on, sure. and um, I will see you at the Ark, and uh, and I will hear you on Acoustic Brunch, uh, you know. So, um, so yeah, I, I uh, I'm actually taking Labor Day off, guys, so uh, I won't be uh, I won't be in on Monday. I will be back in two weeks, uh, and I will see everybody then. So this has been American Winer on PodcastDetroit.com.